Chapter 3 Men's Fights and Women's Struggles A train ride through Ukraine is a journey through different yet simultaneous epochs. I travelled southwards from Kiev on the Euro Express, fast, cool and sober, where the only reminder of Ukraine's sluggish origins was the young female conductor's programmatic peevishness. Such modern trains have most of their seats orientated forwards, noses eagerly pointing towards a future in Europe. But the night train from Krivirich to Kharkiv is a proper Ukrainian train. Bright blue on the outside, with red carpets and conductors serving tea on the inside. Here, we budget travellers rattle ahead in small eight-seat compartments, facing each other in a kind of living room environment where a sense of family quickly forms. Myself, I end up in the arms of Ivan and his family on their way home to Poltava. When I introduce myself as Swedish, I suddenly become popular, and they offer me generous quantities of salo, the pork rinds that are the pride of traditional Ukrainian cuisine. To accompany it, they fish out some bread and nalivka, a red pick-me-up with the taste of cherries. From two plastic bags, Ivan's wife conjures forth dish after dish, insisting that I eat my fill. Sausages, crisp bread, chips, pilsner, and another shot of nalivka. And, what do you know, here come the pickled gherkins. I eat, and since no one in the compartment can speak English, not even Ivan's young daughter and her boyfriend, I stumble along in my Ukrainian, which is somewhere between useless and non-existent. Poltava Krasivy Misto. Uh, Poltava is a beautiful city, I say. I have been there before. No, not historishny in the 18th century, but with a friend, uh, Tavarish, companion. Ivan toasts me contentedly and agrees. Poltava is nice. Ukraine is nice. But the state of the nation is not nice. No good. The war. Putin. A bandit. Took Donbass. Like Hitler. Like Hitler. He shakes his head, troubled. His wife unfolds cloth napkins of food and makes a joke that I don't understand. Presses a beer on me, but that's where I draw the line, and I politely decline. Beer goes straight through me, and I don't want to have to run to the loo four times during the night. No, thank you. Douge. Toilet. A lot of toilet. Yes, the train toilets. We should mention the toilets. An experience that can only be described as, well, indescribable. You open the door and step into a multimedia experience, visually, orally, olfactorily. The scent that hits you, thick, caustic, suffocating. And the noise, the train clattering and heaving with the heart-searing screeches of a horror film. An occasional dull thud as the carriage shudders. And then there's the visual, a closet from the previous century in burnished steel with heavy iron fittings dents and scratches, where it is impossible to tell old patches of rust from fresh feces. The bowl that may only be used when the train is in motion, since the excrement is portioned out during the journey. On top of this, there is no water or, of course, paper. 
This inferno, this shaking, trembling, screeching, thumping, and stinking thing. You abandon all hope and enter alone and desperate. You invent strategies to touch as little as possible without falling over. It's possible. Anything's possible. Ivan, the wife, the daughter, and the son-in-law have lifted the mood with their good humour, food, and endless chatter. The young conductor has been attracted by our animated company and stands in the doorway with the ghost of a smile on his face. But suddenly Ivan turns serious. Paul. I, in military service, 1986, Chernobyl, three months, Lidvitator, you understand. Chernobyl, a problem? You sick? No, not sick, hard work. We chew our pickled gherkins in silence. I reflect upon Chernobyl's significance, a collective nightmare a civil war, a mission in a hell that one was brought up to believe was an Eden. Ivan knocks back an olivka and shakes off his discomposure. Paul, you have family? Yes, I reply. A wife and two daughters, thirteen and fifteen. Good, Paul, good. Family is important. Yes, it's good. Important. Not like in Kiev. Kiev? Gay parade! Homosexuals! Ptui! Says Ivan with a dismissive gesture, symbolically spitting on the compartment floor. Ptui! Amerikansky! Soros! Soros and the queers, of course. I give Ivan a cheerful nod. Make a note to self. Must check up that Soros guy. Suspected homosexual infiltration. I drain my glass and make to head off to the toilet. No, joking aside, Ivan may be condemned and mocked for his homophobia, such a fitting portrait of genuine Eastern European primitivism. We smile as heartily at the attitude as we do at Sasha Baron Cohen's mockumentary of the fictitious reporter Borat from Kazakhstan, with values drawn straight from a Central Asian Middle Age. And Ukraine is hardly gay-friendly. When the U.S. Fact Tank, the Pew Research Center, polled young people's attitudes towards gay marriage, Sweden was at the bottom, with only 5% opposed. In Georgia, 94% were against homo marriage, with Russia and Ukraine not far behind, at 86 and 82% respectively. And at the outbreak of the corona pandemic in 2020, the honorary patriarch of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, Filaret Denisenko, pointed the finger of blame at same-sex marriage. Shortly afterwards, the activist group Insight LGBTQ announced that they intended to sue the patriarch for inciting discrimination against vulnerable groups. So, my train companion Ivan was hardly alone in his views on homosexuality. His opinion is, of course, despicable, but it is still worth trying to understand. At heart, it can be an expression of something other than the gratuitous hatred of a minority. In the recent past, Ukraine has stepped from a distorted Soviet social logic straight into teetering capitalism and tentative democracy. 
While the fortunate few became rich, for many people, conditions have only improved marginally, if at all. Poverty, cancer, disease, car accidents, alcoholism, they are all still prevalent. A normal family outside the globalised urban centres has, all in all, few opportunities to make something grand in life. For the majority, none of the siren songs of modernity has been quick to fulfil the promises of a golden future, be it communism, nationalism, democracy or capitalism. But the family itself is a choice, where the individual can have influence, create order and establish a biological context. It is available for all and possible to venerate and defend. The question is whether Ivan actually gives two hoots about how homosexuals live their lives. Perhaps the Pride Parade simply symbolises an alien phenomenon that he thinks mocks what gives his own life meaning and value. Step a few centimetres outside the borders of Scandinavia and you tumble into a world of attitudes towards gender roles that tend to be dismissed as medieval in the Swedish public discourse. No, I'm exaggerating. Let me nuance this. The 19th century begins after the Eresund Bridge. Cross the Fermanagh Belt and you are in the 18th century. Venture beyond the Oder to the east or the Pyrenees to the south and you will find yourself in the Middle Ages. Ukraine is no exception. When the Pew Research Centre asked Europeans if gender equality was important, Sweden came at the top, with 96% responding in the affirmative. At the bottom was Russia, with 54%. Hovering just above with 57% was Ukraine. Ordinary Ukraine, if we are to talk of such an entity, must for now be classed as a markedly macho country. A curious sign of this is all the degenerated debates in Verkhovna Rada, the Ukrainian parliament. If the term Polish parliament is used in Sweden to express general chaos, then Ukraine's Verkhovna Rada is well placed to lend its name to a feistier phenomenon. Since 2000, debate after debate on sensitive issues have ended in a barrage of fists, eggs, smoke grenades, tea and water bottles. In a demonstration of some resourcefulness against the threat of egg bombardment, the chairman has taken to arming himself with an umbrella, which he unfolds when the artillery begins. Effectively, every year of the 2010s, the parliament has hosted an out-and-out brawl, often between the far-right nationalists and the pro-Russians. During one attempt to influence the parliament's decision-making process, the chairman was locked inside his office. One member of parliament, Vitaly Klitschko, Maidan leader and former world champion boxer and current mayor of Kiev, has kept himself out of such occasions and remained quietly standing by his bench, dignified and coolly observant. The same cannot be said for his fellow parliamentarian, Oleg Lashko. A former shepherd, tractor driver and journalist, Lashko became leader of the radical party Oleg Lashko a nationalist party whose emblem of choice is a pitchfork. With his belligerent debating style, he has become embroiled in many of these parliamentary punch-ups. Although he lost his seat in the 2019 election, the struggle continues. That same November, 
In the VIP lounge of Kiev's Borispiel Airport, Lashko attacked Zelenskyite politician Andriy Herus and shoved him up against the wall. He even made sure that the whole incident was filmed and proudly posted a clip of it on social media. Russian media have reported on the outbreaks of violence in the Ukrainian parliament with barely concealed glee. And when Russia Today showed a video of a face-off that ended in a profuse nosebleed, the reporter even felt at liberty to share a defensive quote from one of the brawlers. It was a fight against corruption. On another occasion in 2014, outside the parliament, people on the street intervened by picking up MP Vitaly Zhuravsky and carrying him to a large waste bin, into which they crammed him with grim determination. To the outsider, these outbursts are high-octane comedy. But they are also fundamentally tragic, and above all, embarrassing for an institution that represents the people's will and enlightened debate. After all, this was meant to be a country striving to establish modern democracy. To me, as a Swede, such showdowns are also incomprehensible. Perhaps because I don't see the debates from the vantage point of those involved as real human conflicts, but from that of the camera, where political debates are staged only to be filtered and interpreted by the mass media. When these fights play out on YouTube, the politicians merely come across as primitive and ridiculous. I asked Lviv-based sociologist and feminist Tamara Zlobina how they are to be understood. My spontaneous reaction is, quite simply, that they're idiots. But there's a broader explanation, I know that. In the 90s, after the power structures of Sovietism had collapsed, the rules of masculinity in Ukraine were renegotiated. Gangster culture was romanticised pretty vigorously in the country. There was a reconquering of a kind of revived physical masculinity. 1990s Ukraine, with its economic collapse, shook society and its foundations, Tamara Zlobina tells me, not just economically, but socially too. Many of those who advanced in Ukrainian public life as a businessman or politician had a criminal background. And with rapid privatisation came new types of leaders. Aggressive, uncompromising and cynical macho men who created networks, shared state property between them and developed the corruption schemes. And as these new power holders entered Parliament, these criminal behaviour patterns moved in with them. Tamara's Lobina also claims that the economic crisis, which over a matter of years erased 60% of the country's GDP, set gender roles reeling. After the early 1990s, the population rate nosedived, and as people struggled for their survival, Ukraine surrendered itself to more traditional gender roles. Women were marginalised in the public space and placed within the family. Today, the Ukrainian population is also heavily tilted towards the female, with 100 women to every 86.3 men. Life expectancy for women and men is, respectively, 76 and 66, which, according to a 2015 study by the Pew Research Center, is the fifth largest difference in the world. The global average is four and a half years a disparity to which war and alcoholism have been major contributors. So, 
despite or possibly because of the officially proclaimed gender equality of the Soviet era, Ukraine maintains traditional values as regards gender roles. One study from the United Nations Population Fund, UNFPA, reports that during their childhood, one in four Ukrainians saw their father hit their mother. 70% of Ukrainian men believe that women's most important roles are as cook and family carer. Abortion is permitted up to week 12, but a majority of the country thinks it should be made illegal. Just over one-third of the country defends abortion rights. The World Value Survey publishes a map of national values along two axes, one of which runs a scale of attitudes from traditional to secular rational. Ukraine is found relatively high on this scale towards the latter end, indicating a rather modern, distanced view of religion and traditions. The other axis runs between survival and self-expression. In 2019, Ukraine was far down on the survival scale, much further down than it was in 2008, indicating a greater prioritization of law, order and material matters. Sexism is a serious problem in Ukraine's workplaces, says Olga Nemanyezhina, whom I have lunch with one August day in the district of Podil. She is currently the Liberal Party Sila Lude, People's Power international secretary and head of its women's association, in which capacity she advocates for gender equality and women having a greater influence in politics. I suffered from it early on in my professional life, and it wounded me deeply. Olga grew up in Donbass, studied international relations and economics at university, and, after having won a student competition, she was invited in 2010 to be an assistant at the government offices for the country's first deputy prime minister. It was like being thrown into a completely different world, with fine clothes, important meetings and conferences at which I had a role that imparted considerable responsibility. After a while, however, one of my superiors said that we should go on a private date. I declined wanting to maintain a professional relationship. But he grew increasingly persistent. When Olga brought up the matter with her boss, she was advised to accept. After all, he was an important political figure, and he was accustomed to getting his way. I really looked up to my bosses in those early years. They had power and were building a new Ukraine. But the pressure didn't let up, and I kept getting propositioned. Her working day was one of continual evasion and bartering, and when she finally tried to raise the matter once and for all, her overly attentive superior hit the roof and threatened to destroy Olga's life. By that point, I'd had enough. I had to quit. My job had become one years-long nightmare. It was really traumatic. I was so disappointed in the people I'd admired and felt that my professional ambitions had been dashed. Years of constant stress had ground my career dreams to dust. These experiences led to chronic stress and tracked me down into a personal crisis that took years to climb out of. And I'm far from the only one to have been subjected to such treatment. Today. Olga has been able to establish a normal working life, but says that what she went through heavily impacted her behaviour. She is constantly on her guard, she says, 
and to a certain degree oversensitive to different signs of sexist power abuse. I dare say some people see me as standoffish and supercilious, and this business is energy draining. But I try to look ahead and not live as a victim, but as an actor and leader. Olga tells me that Ukraine has a long way to go before equality in the workplace is achieved. What does she think it will take to bring about lasting change? Legislation and penalties around sexism. That's essential. But it's also about changing mentalities and making sexism unacceptable, she says. Ukraine's gender equality movement is making headway but facing opposition. One reason for this is the fractured nature of the feminist movement, which is all too visible in the run-up to the annual International Women's Day celebrations on the 8th of March. The main parade has on several occasions been boycotted by different women's movements. Some organisations think that Women's Day, having been an official holiday since Soviet times, should be abolished as part of the country's decommunization process. Others claim that Women's Day is a conservative tradition that endows women with flowers and presents instead of genuine power. Some movements react to how, in refusing to criminalise prostitution, the women's movement is merely confirming the systematic exploitation of women. An anti-patriarchal anarchist movement, the Rhythm of Resistance, has protested the lack of interest shown by the official women's march in terms of showing solidarity with other marginalised groups. Further, the protest movement Femin in Ukraine has performed various bare-chested actions to protest what it sees as the three pillars of patriarchy. Dictatorship, the sex industry, and the Orthodox Church. Femin's most prominent Ukrainian representative is the high-profile and often, at least during demonstrations, topless Inna Shevchenko, who is quoted by The Guardian as calling Ukraine a women's hell a meat market where they are continually being prodded and groped. I'm proud that we've brought the concepts of feminism and women's rights to a politically ignorant part of the world, like Ukraine, Russia and Belarus, she told the newspaper. Shevchenko, who does not shy away from provocation in either word or deed, asserts that Femin is a kind of feminist terrorist group and that feminism is incompatible with monotheistic religions. It was for this very reason that in August 2012, Inna Shevchenko took a chainsaw to a Christian memorial cross in central Kiev in support of the activist group Pussy Riot in Moscow. Her protest was not viewed favourably at home, and Shevchenko applied for and was granted asylum in France. The criticism of the church as an institution has, in turn, left some sectors of the population sceptical of feminism. The topless protests have also sown distrust in women's groups that argue that the exposure of bodies merely perpetuates the view of women as sexual objects. Apart from this internal factionalism, the Women's Day marches encounter opposition from traditional conservative or far-right groups that have often confronted them with banners proclaiming that feminism threatens the national birth rate and population. Feminism, as a label, has a bad reputation in Ukraine, says Tamara Zlobina, frankly. People who work for gender equality usually dissociate themselves from feminism or come out with the I'm not a feminist but line. 
already back in the 1950s, during the Soviet era, the party declared that equality had been achieved. So for 50 years, there was no debate on gender relations. The double labour burden, violence against women, inclusion in executive and leadership positions. But the problems were there, of course. I think that's very much why we're so far behind, as we couldn't even address these issues, she says. The country's feral political life seems to be very much mirrored in the sprawling nature of the women's movement. Meanwhile, the actual daily burdens remain for Ukrainian women. They generally earn a third less than men, even though they are typically more highly qualified. And violence against women is still endemic. A UN study from 2018 noted a sharp rise in gender-based violence. One-third of the men surveyed also stated that they had one or more male friends who have used violence towards their families. Another study, this one conducted by the Ukrainian Institute for Social Research in 2017, showed that fewer than half of Ukrainian women think that physical violence in the home should even be considered criminal. Such attitudes also thrive amongst the nation's public authorities. For example, 80% of the country's police officers and judges treat domestic violence as a private concern. Yet much has also improved. A raft of laws was enacted in the 2000s to strengthen women's rights, including the criminalization of gender-based discrimination in the workplace. Fines have been imposed for discriminatory adverts, and quotas have even been introduced for all parties standing for election, so that 40% of the listed candidates must now be female. In 2018, women constituted around 10% of the parliament. After the 2019 election, the situation changed dramatically, and the share is now almost double that. In 2021, a law will come into effect obliging the government to set up sheltered housing for women fleeing violence in the home. Many of these changes are part of the country's alignment with EU law and UN conventions. For example, a new consent clause tightened the law on rape in 2019. International organisations have also provided substantial support for equality programmes and a great many organisations have been formed in the country. Furthermore, Katerina Levchenko was elected in 2017 to a newly established post as Government Commissioner for Gender Equality and the 2010s saw a strengthening of women's rights in the armed forces. There are now, after a few years' dramatic increase, some 55,000 female soldiers. Yes, quite a lot has happened. But low self-esteem remains rife amongst Ukrainian women, and this we want to combat, says Irina Malashevska, a Kiev-based translator and writer and one of the leaders of the Creative Women's Space Collective a few blocks away from Maidan Square, which I visit one afternoon. The collective where Irina works with her half-dozen or so colleagues has become a shared workspace for women entrepreneurs. Its central location and spacious rooms also make CWS a popular place to lease for events. What keeps women down is often attitudes that have been consolidated during childhood, so they take a long time to change. People say to girls, don't do this or that, you're a girl. Be demure, don't draw attention to yourself. They're encouraged not to assert themselves in the same way as boys are. 
girls grow up thinking that they don't have the knowledge or qualifications to realise their dreams. One positive thing is that many women in Ukraine are self-employed. I also think that women here have a stronger position than in countries like Armenia, Georgia and Russia. But generally speaking, many women have the attitude that the most important thing for the family is to nurture the man's career. Through collectives like Creative Women Space, Irina Malashevska hopes that the country can lay the groundwork for broader financial autonomy for women. If we can create more spaces for women to grow and support each other, I think we'll see a massive change in the next 10 years, she says. And the values of the macho country, like much else there, are in flux. Kiev's Pride Parade in June 2019 was the largest ever in a post-Soviet country. The police shielded the march, which drew around 8,000 participants. However, they got wind that anti-LGBT activists had set up a poo lab, where they filled condoms with excrement to pelt the protesters with. According to the news blog Bellingcat, the plan backfired. As it turned out, preparing the projectiles was beyond the activist's skills profile and the condoms split, befouling the saboteurs themselves with their raw contents. When the police uncovered the lab, their plans collapsed. For some, it all ended, well, shittily. All in all, Kiev Pride 2019 was a resounding success, albeit one that was not without incidents. When a similar parade was arranged the following September in Kharkiv, the city's first ever, things got a good deal nastier. Between 2,000 and 3,000 people took part, and several hundred counter-demonstrators turned up to confront them. In the ensuing riot, many pride demonstrators were attacked and injured. Ukraine is mid-stride, although its forward progression feels like a trek through waist-high water. Traditions and old established norms persist in a country that is still very much steeped in a survival culture. But in its careening emancipation from Russia, a new action space has emerged.